Okay, good morning, everyone. I'm really excited about this, um, about teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we went through the book of 1 Corinthians uh, as a youth group, uh, I think a little over four years ago. Um, and I was really amazed at uh, the, the content that was there, some of which I hadn't really realized before, and at its relevance, relevance for us today. Um, the interesting thing about a letter is, is that it's, it's kind of like listening to one side of a phone conversation because it has, it's written by a specific person to a specific target audience. In this case, the, the target audience was the church at Corinth. And especially so with First and Second Corinthians, there had been a lot of interaction already between the church at Corinth and Paul. And so Paul is addressing both questions that the Corinthians had posed to him, as well as uh, concerns, stuff that he had heard through other people. He's addressing those questions and those concerns throughout uh, the book of First Corinthians. And so sometimes we don't have the exact backdrop that Paul was addressing. We don't know exactly what the question was that was asked, except by what we get through the answer. Um, but, but I think to understand the letter better, um, it may be necessary for us to kind of understand the setting of, of Corinth. I just wanted to show you here. There we go. Sorry about that. So there is Corinth. They're at the red marker. Uh, this is right off of Google Maps, so this is current. Um, it's only, Corinth is only about an hour drive from Athens, uh, which lies to the east. Um, if we zoom up a little bit, we see that uh, the city of Corinth lay right on a narrow strip of land that connected two seas. And ships could either, uh, could either sail all, all the way around uh, the south, the south shore of Greece, and they often, uh, back in those days, they would hug the shore as much as possible because they they wanted to keep land in sight if possible, so they they wouldn't get lost or uh, get blown out further to sea. Um, and so they could either go all the way around the south side, hundreds of miles, or they could come right here to Corinth and unload their boats and take. Uh, take their cargo about three and a half or four miles across that narrow strip of land to the other side where they would reload the cargo onto other ships. Or in some cases, uh, they would actually um, drag the ships across so that they could save the, that, uh, those extra hundreds of miles around the south end. And so um, Corinth became a strategic place because of this, because of all the ships that were coming, unloading, going across, and and uh, loading back up on the other side, um, there was. The, here's here's a couple old ruins from Corinth with uh, the Acropolis at the background. There, there was a road that the Romans had built uh, crossing the strip of land there, and Nero actually started um, a momentous project of digging a canal. It's unbelievable. I look back at the way they would have had to 
do it. It's unbelievable that they even started the project. Uh, but he was called to squash a rebellion uh, somewhere else, and he, he gave up the project before it was finished. So uh, around 1,800 years later, uh, a French engineering company finally finished the project. Um, so there's this beautiful canal that runs right through there, and ships, small ships, unfortunately they didn't dig it wide enough to, to accommodate large freight carriers, but small ships, cruise ships, uh, can go through there. Um, so you can see the strategic location of Corinth contributed to its makeup. Um, for just a little bit of history on Corinth, in, in, uh, it was a famous Greek city, a place of, of uh, prosperity, a place where a lot of people would travel to, um, and it was also incredibly immoral. There was a temple uh, to the Greek goddess of love, uh, that housed a thousand temple prostitutes, and there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of of uh, bad immoral reputation in Corinth because of the paganism there, the immorality, and that's why uh, we had um, that's why we had the the saying "Not for every man is the voyage to Corinth" because it was a very wicked place even in the eyes of of um, pagan people. People who didn't know God. Um, so, a little bit of a little bit of setting for this letter from Paul to the people at Corinth. Um, this was not Paul's first letter to them. In fact, we know that Paul wrote four letters. He makes reference to the other letters that he wrote. We lost the first one for sure. Um, the second letter, and I'll show you this here. So the second letter is actually what we call 1 Corinthians, and the third letter was probably lost, and then the fourth letter is what we call uh, 2 Corinthians, although some people speculate that the third letter may be incorporated into, into the, uh, the fourth letter, 2 Corinthians. So we might have some of that, we're not sure. Um, but Paul was also making visits to Corinth um, in between those letters, and as you can see here, uh, after his first visit to Corinth, which was probably at least 18 months long, um, he got some bad reports about the Corinthian church. And so he wrote them a letter, which was not very well received. And he got another report, which was a, a bad report, again, about how the church was doing, along with a letter um, addressing some of the questions they had. And this is where we get... 1st Corinthians. Um, unfortunately, after the book of 1st Corinthians, after the letter the, that we call 1st Corinthians was received by the Corinthian church, Paul got a report that was even worse than the first. So just keep that in the back of your mind. This letter didn't fix all their problems. Um, after that worst report, Paul made another visit uh, to the church at Corinth along with Titus, um, and then after that he wrote the third letter, and then he got a report that was better, and then he wrote the fourth letter to them, which we have as Second Corinthians, and in that letter he, he makes a lot of defenses for his apostleship and for his ministry, specifically in regards to how he had ministered to them. Some of the reports that Paul had gotten uh, was that there were divisions in the church, there was immorality in the church. In fact, immorality 
uh, to such a degree as wasn't even named among the Gentiles. There were litigations. People were suing each other, uh, taking each other to law. Um, there was idolatry, uh, questions about, about uh, eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. They had questions about uh, how men and women should interact in the church. Uh, there were reports about abuses for uh, during the Lord's Supper, there were people who were getting drunk and eating in excess and hurting each other's feelings while they were having the Lord's Supper. And there were even some that were doubting the resurrection of Jesus and saying he probably didn't actually rise physically. His physical body didn't rise. So we need to understand that to know what Paul was addressing, the degree of of um, problems that were in the Corinthian church. And maybe the backdrop helps us understand, just understanding the immoral place that, that Corinth was. Uh, Corinth, at the time that the Corinthian church was established, was no longer primarily a Greek city. In 146 B.C., uh, the Romans came in and took over uh, that part of Greece. They attacked the city of Corinth. And they killed all the men and sold the women and children into slavery. And then they burned the city, completely destroyed it. And it, it stayed that way for around 100 years. Um, in 44 B.C., uh, there was a Roman who came up and rebuilt the city. And legend has it that because it was a city that was dedicated to the gods, it couldn't be um, rebuilt for for a hundred years after it had been destroyed. So when the city was rebuilt by the Romans, the, the architecture, the religious centers, and all of that were primarily Roman, even though there was still leftover Greek influence in the area. So that's going to be important to understand later on with some of the things that Paul addresses later on in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> So, interestingly, even though Corinth was known for its immorality and for its prosperity, it was a place where people could um, immigrate to. Uh, a lot of people who had been granted Roman citizenship immigrated to Corinth and became successful, wealthy businessmen. Uh, there was also a lot of emphasis because of the, the surrounding uh, Greek influence. There was a lot of emphasis on uh, knowledge and oration um, it was an educated, prosperous, and very immoral place. And when Paul wanted to go to that area to preach the gospel, you know what God told him? Says he, he appeared to him in a vision and he said, uh, I want you to stay here because I have many people in this city. Isn't that an encouraging word? That God would look at a place like Corinth. That was just absolutely corrupt and immoral. And he sends one of his apostles there and he says, I want you to stay here for a good while because I have a, I have a lot of people in this city. That should give us hope when, um, when our culture is morally degrading, when wickedness seems to be um, rising up around us. It should give us hope that God still has many people in spite of the darkness around us. 
there are there are four key words um, through the book of Corinthians: spiritual. Uh, the Corinthians talked a lot about spirituality, wisdom, knowledge, and power. And Paul talks a lot about these four key things to them. Um, one of the key questions in First Corinthians is what is real spirituality? What does real spirituality look like? What does it look like when a church is truly spiritual? And Paul gives them the answer. He, he lays out a lot of the functions of the church and how the gifts in the body interact with each other. But then he shows them in, in chapter 13, which is sandwiched right between two chapters that talk extensively, more extensively than any other part of the body, uh, the, the Bible, about spiritual gifts, gifts given by the Holy Spirit to the body. He puts a section in there that says, if you don't love each other, the, all that is completely worthless. It's completely worthless. It can be genuinely received from the Holy Spirit. You can have genuine gifts from the Holy Spirit. But if you're not operating in love, if you don't love each other, you can just scrap it all. It's not worth anything. And he goes on to show that, that the, the true spirituality is the wisdom of God as it was displayed through the sacrificial love of Jesus. And the message is so simple that a lot of people who were seeking wisdom and knowledge missed it. They had been distracted from the simplicity of the message of Jesus giving his life sacrificially on the cross. And that 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 love that God demonstrated is truly the wisdom of God and its true spirituality. Paul also showed why people reject the gospel, and particularly in Corinth, there was such a mixture of Jews and Greeks and Romans, and Paul showed them why the gospel was offensive to so many people. Even in the context of the church, people who had believed the gospel but then who were kind of pulled away from it, and he showed them the reasons why. So the the gospel message is irrational and unreasonable. Probably nowhere else in the New Testament do we have such a clear presentation of the fact that the gospel message is not going to be understood by human intellect and reason. Paul says it very clearly. You can't understand it that way. In fact, God has chosen the poor, the weak, the despised, the rejected. They're the ones who who get it. The intelligent, the wealthy, the famous, the rich, they, they often miss it. And he says this is why the gospel isn't, isn't received by those who are looking for knowledge and who are trying to figure it out intellectually because God purposely doesn't allow people to discover it through their own intellect. And then he says to the Jews, and there were a lot of Jews in Corinth as well, to the Jews it's a stumbling block because the Jews were looking for power and signs. They wanted someone who would come in, in, in power and with lots of, of of great signs, the way that God had acted um, for the Jews, back the, the stories that they still told about how God had brought them out of Egypt and how he had parted the Red Sea and destroyed their enemies and all that. They wanted to see that kind of display. And because the gospel didn't come that way, it didn't come with that kind of display. It didn't come as a glorious conquering army who put the Romans in their place and, and delivered the Jews from from oppression, 
they missed it. It became a stumbling block to them. And they rejected it as well. But there were a handful, there were quite a few people in Corinth actually, that had received the gospel. Um, A lot of them came from lower backgrounds, from lower economic backgrounds. Maybe they weren't wealthy, maybe they weren't intelligent or rich. But they had seen that the gospel came in genuine power and they believed it and received it. So let's go to chapter 1. First Corinthians, and we're going to start in there. Um, we're not going to be able to hit everything in depth in in the book of First Corinthians. Um, we're basically going to be hitting the highest points given the time that we have. Um, I think with five or six uh, sessions, we're only going to be able to hit some of the high points. But we do want to know. What in the book of 1 Corinthians is God saying to us? Because there's two things that we want to understand. One is the original intent of the letter. When Paul wrote this letter to the the Corinthian church, he intended for it to mean something specific. In fact, God intended for it to mean something specific. It wasn't maybe it means this and maybe it means that. He had a very specific message for them throughout the letter. The same is true for us. God has a very specific message for the church. And that means both the universal church and for Cleveland Believers Fellowship, for the people that are sitting right here today, all of us. God has something very specific that he wants to say from this book. And what an incredible opportunity we have to come to God and say, God, just tell us whatever you want to tell us out of this letter that was originally sent to the Corinthian church, and now you've sent it to us. So so what an amazing privilege we have. And my desire above anything else is that we would actually really get the message that God has for us through this. Um, Not just possible interpretations of it, or it might mean this or it might mean that, but that we would understand the powerful gospel as it's presented through 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very important that Paul from the start establishes that he is writing as an apostle who was called by God. He's not saying I'm an apostle because this is what I chose to do with my life. No, he had a calling directly from God. In fact, he had seen the resurrected Jesus and received his apostleship straight from him, directly from Jesus. So he was an apostle by the will of God and they needed to understand that this message that Paul was writing to them in a letter, even though parts of it might seem hard or offensive. This was actually coming from God. And there was Sosthenes who was co-writing it. Now Sosthenes might might be uh, the, the former ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. And we have the story in the book of Acts of how the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, um, believed the gospel. And so he, he was converted to Christianity and so he would have had to have been replaced. 
Um, and Sosthenes was likely his replacement. And so after Paul was ministering in Corinth for a while, um, it says there was an uprising from the Jews and they, they, uh, took, they took their case before Gallio to complain to him how Paul was um, teaching heresy, dissentious things, whatever. And Gallio said, I don't care. It's, I don't have anything to do with this. This is just religious matters. And he didn't care about it at all. And so um, it says they drove them away from, from the, the place where, where they had drugged the, the ruler of the synagogue and, and Paul to. And after Gallio dismissed the case, um, they got Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him. Probably to show him, hey, we're not interested in your religious matters. Don't bring him over here. Okay, don't be making scenes like this. So they beat him and they let him go. And this is likely the, the same man who I don't know whether it was through that whole, uh, that whole incident that he started really thinking about what the gospel was. But um, it's likely that it was that second ruler of the synagogue who also came to know Christ. Paul writes to the church of God in Corinth. He starts by making their identity clear. And we'll see later on in in this book why that was so important. For their identity to be clear, he says, it's the church of God. That's your identity. That's who you are. You belong to God. You've been called by him. You've been uh, redeemed by him. And you've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Remember that list of problems that we saw? He's saying this about those people. He's, this is not flattery. This is establishing their identity as believers in the gospel, that they have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, and that they are called to be saints. They're called to live according to that sanctification that has already taken place in them. With all those who call on the name of the Lord. So, so there's... Um, and he says, both their Lord and ours. So Paul is going into this not saying, you know what, you guys have a lot of problems. I'm not even sure if you're Christians anymore. Uh, which would have probably been easy to do given the, the problems that he was addressing in, in 1 Corinthians. But he establishes their identity as called to be saints, sanctified, and they're part of the universal church that God is at work in. What a hopeful message and I think the, the reference to the universal church also has larger implications. This, what I'm about to write, is, is applicable to all of us. And he says grace and peace. He gives them a word of blessing. And I think this is such an imp- important um, foundation for him to lay as he goes in to address difficult things later through, through his letter. He thanks God I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he says that they are not lacking in any gift. The Holy Spirit has given them everything they need to function as a healthy, thriving church. And he also says that Jesus was at work in them. 
and was going to sustain them to the day of the Lord. Now, especially the Jews were very familiar with what the day of the Lord was. In the Old Testament, there's frequent reference to the day of the Lord. And it it usually is spoken of as a day of judgment, a day of doom. Or sometimes the day of the Lord is where God is breaking directly into history, intervening, um, often in terms of of, uh, supernatural warfare. But the Christians had adopted this term because they knew that there was a day of the Lord that was coming when Jesus would come back to receive his church and to bring judgment on those who did not believe. And Paul is saying that Jesus is at work in you to present you guiltless in the day of the Lord. In spite of all the problems that he's about to address. God was faithful and had called them into fellowship of Jesus. So I wonder how many times as they read this letter, they had to say, hey, wait a minute, guys, don't don't. Uh, don't get all upset about this. Let's go back to, to the first paragraph. God is at work in us, and he is going to present us guiltly, guiltless in the day of the Lord. He starts out with an appeal to them. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, these were some of the people that had brought Paul reports of what was going on in Corinth, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So... So the first thing that he addresses, the first concern that he addresses was not something they had asked about. It was something that had been reported to him by Chloe's people. And that was that the church was divided, fragmented, because there were some people who were saying, I follow this man's teachings. And and other people were saying, I follow that man's teachings for these reasons. And Paul needed to address this from the get-go because if they were divided and splintered there was no way they were going to be able to work through their problems to come to maturity in christ he still calls them brothers he he addresses them as brothers he says saying remember that you guys are family and family shouldn't be divided family should be united because we all have the same father we're all connected as family So some of them said, I belong to Paul. Some said, I belong to Apollos. Others said, I belong to Peter. And I think it's, it's interesting, given the mixture of people in Corinth, that, that this happened. It's, in fact, kind of logical that those with Jewish background would have tended toward one thing. Those with um, 
maybe more Greek religious background would have tended toward another thing. But Paul is saying that this should not be because there is one person who unites us. And that is Christ. Paul had come to them and had um, established the church in Corinth. He was the one who came initially and preached the gospel. He preached uh, to a lot of the Gentiles in Corinth, not only to the Jews. In fact, it was around his, the time of his ministry there that he, he said, because the Jews were rejecting the gospel, he said, okay, I'm going to stop preaching to the Jews and I'm going to go to the Gentiles. So he had led not only a lot of Jews in Corinth to faith in Christ, but a lot of Gentiles. And then there was Apollos. And you remember what it says in the book of Acts about Apollos? Maybe we'll just go there and read. In Acts chapter 18. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And this is just before Paul had gone to uh, Corinth. He was an eloquent man competent in the scriptures he had been instructed in the way of the lord and being fervent in spirit he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning jesus though he knew only the baptism of john he began to speak boldly in the synagogue he was a jew but when priscilla and aquila heard him they took him aside and explained to him the word of god more accurately And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that was Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So here was a man who came onto the scene after Paul had planted the church in Corinth, and he was a powerful speaker Um, He spoke boldly, he spoke persuasively, and he came in and he established the faith of these believers, teaching them further how to follow Christ and refuting the Jews who wanted to add the law into the gospel of Jesus. And so it stands to reason that there were people who were who were there when Paul came and who had maybe received the gospel from Paul and who had seen him heal sick and do all kinds of miracles, demonstrations of power of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul laid hands on people, they would receive the Holy Spirit and and oftentimes they would speak in tongues and prophesy and there were these miraculous signs that would follow. So Paul's ministry came in demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. It was God confirming the word that Paul was preaching. So it stands to reason the people who were there when Paul came would have said, hey, I was here from the start. I saw that guy and I saw the power of God that operated through him and the way that people were delivered from demon possession and the way that the sick were healed. That's my guy. I'm with him. And then there were the intellectuals who loved sitting under Apollos' teachings. And they're like, man, this guy's deep. And when he speaks, it just, I I just feel so spiritually nourished and and like I'm growing in my understanding of who Jesus is and and of the gospel. And it was all, it was right. It was legitimate. Apollos was doing an amazing work in Corinth, establishing the work that 
that Paul had started there. And then there were those who said, you know what? Paul and Apollos, they both came on the scene later. Peter is the original. Man, he was there when Jesus got crucified. He followed Jesus for three years. He saw the miracles that Jesus did. He heard his teachings day after day. And if you had questions about, what, you know, what did Jesus mean when he said this? Peter probably knew because he had actually sat there and listened to his teachings. He knew Jesus in a way that Paul and Apollos didn't. Because he had actually walked with him when he was here on earth in the flesh. And so there were people who said, Peter's the original, I'm with him. And then there were people who said, and Paul may either be referencing this as, but the, the real person you should be following is Christ. But more likely he's saying, there were people who were, who were saying, I'm not with any of those three. I'm with Christ. I follow Christ. I don't, I don't care what Paul says. I don't care what Apollos says. And who cares about Peter? I follow Christ. And you know what? The underlying thing was all the same and probably equally destructive. Piper says there are, there are two kinds of disunity that are represented here. One is the vicarious ego boosting where you attach yourself to a personality, to a famous person, a wealthy person, whatever. We do it all the time with, with sports teams, right? People are like, that's my team. We won. It's like, we won? Really? It's, it's just a human tendency. You attach yourself to people, to organizations, to whatever you think might give you kind of a sense of identity, of belonging or uh, fame. And then there's the other side. There's the anti-authoritarian cynicism. People who say, I don't belong to any of those. I am my own person. I'm just going to keep it real. I'm, a, I'm just going to be myself. Nobody's going to tell me how to live, what to do. I'm just, I'm just going to be, be real. And there's a version of that that exists in Christianity. In fact, I've had both of those in myself and probably still have some of both of those in myself. So we can even have the tendency to attach ourselves to a person and the tendency to say, hey, I'm just following Christ. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And we'll pick whichever one suits um, us best at a given moment. But the result is the same. The result is a fractured body that has lost its sense of oneness. And it's so applicable to us. I think it's maybe more applicable to us today than at any time in history because we can, at any given moment, we can go onto YouTube, we can listen to um, famous preachers we can listen to eloquent teachers people who are really profound who have a deep understanding of the word of god and we're like man if only dk would preach like that i it's it's more of a tendency for us now than ever i think because of our access to all kinds of teaching and not just teaching, but personalities. We do that. We, t we attach ourselves to personalities. We're like, man, it's not just the way that guy speaks, but something about him. I really like him. I like the way he comes across. Or I, I, I'm going to follow this person because I see he, he has so many testimonies of deliverance. You know, whenever he counsels people, they, they come to deliverance. And we can start having 
these rifts in the body where one person says, I follow that man, and another person says, I follow that man. And we know better than saying it now, of course, because we've read 1 Corinthians, but we still feel it. And Paul's saying, this is not healthy. You guys are brothers. Was Paul crucified for you? In fact, he says, I intentionally avoided baptizing people. Do you know how many converts Paul must have had in Corinth? It's possible that he had thousands of converts during his time there. And how many people did he baptize? Only a handful. He uh, intentionally avoided baptizing people and had other people take care of that because he knew that if he went baptizing his own converts... People were going to do just that. Look, I was baptized by the original Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote Ephesians and Philippians and all those other epistles. So he avoided baptizing people because he said, that's not what I was commissioned for. I wasn't commissioned to create a following for myself. I was commissioned to preach the gospel. And moreover, I was commissioned to preach it in simplicity. I intentionally avoided using eloquent words of wisdom. You read the epistles. Man, Paul had a depth of understanding that I'm sure none of us in here have. And yet he avoided eloquent words of wisdom. Because he did not want to empty the cross of Christ of its power. So we have to be careful... To not empty the cross of Christ of its power through the way we teach and the way we speak and the way we create followings of, of people and organizations and denominations. He says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who perish, but it, it's, it's the power of God to those who are being saved. It evades the wisdom of men because it's not possible to know God through human wisdom. And that's one of the central themes through 1 Corinthians. You're not going to know God through your own intellect or understanding. You're going to know Him through revelation. And this was Paul's claim. When I came to you, I didn't come to you with eloquent words of human wisdom. I came to you in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The Jews were looking for power, looking for signs, and the Greeks were looking for wisdom. They had, they had this um, massive amphitheater right there in Corinth. You could seat thousands of people, and they had famous orators who would come and give the most amazing speeches that would just wow the crowds. And people were just running after that kind of knowledge and intellect and science all this, this amazing stuff that these orators would teach. And Paul said that's not what the gospel is. It doesn't fit into that category. And you might think that because you live in Corinth and because you have all these wise philosophers and smooth talkers that you need to present the gospel in that way. And that's not true. Because if you do that, if you play that game, you are actually going to empty the cross of Christ of its power. And he further tells them that God didn't choose many 
wise or powerful or noble. He chose the weak as subjects on which to demonstrate his power. He chose the foolish, the unlearned, uneducated as students of his wisdom. And he says, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. See, through the cross of Jesus, the greatest, the cross of Jesus is the greatest display of wisdom, the wisdom of God ever displayed to mankind. And it's the simplicity of the story of Jesus dying on the cross that brings us life. Romans 3 says that the, the, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law now. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that's the message that Paul had for the Corinthians. Because when you come to the cross and you realize, I am undone. There's nothing that I have to offer outside of the cross of Jesus. That's where we become one. There's no other way for the church at Cleveland to be united and to be functioning in a healthy way. The way a body should other than for all of us to put our focus on the cross of Jesus. Because there, we're all at the same place. We're all undone. We're all unlearned. We're all untaught. We're all foolish. But that's where the wisdom of God can be made manifest in our hearts, through the revelation of the gospel of Jesus in us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus Thank you that he was willing to humble himself, to take on the form of a servant, to empty himself of his glory. And God, we don't even know what that means because we haven't seen his glory except dimly. But he emptied himself of his glory and he took the humiliation, the shame, the punishment of our sin on himself. And forgive us, God, for we've turned to other things, to other ideas, to other people besides Jesus. And where we've allowed that to create divisions between us. God, we want to learn how to love each other as a body, as a local church here at Cleveland Believers Fellowship. We want to learn how to love each other, how to see Jesus in each other, how to speak the identity that comes only through Jesus into each other. God, please do that in our hearts because we can't do it ourselves. We need you to do that in us. And thank you that even though we have problems, even though we fall short of your glory, that you are patient with us, with us and you are working in us to will and to do your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.